Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. We're happy today that our guest is Sharon Greenwald. Sharon's an advocate for mental health and has written a book, 69th Street Suicide. It's written from the angle of explaining her why through the thoughts and feelings she endured for many years. Her purpose is to help erase the stigma of mental health. As I mentioned before, Sharon, for one, I'm on your team when it comes to erasing the stigma and asking for help when it comes to mental illness. As I mentioned, I, I suffered through severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and was not even aware of it until I asked for help and was properly diagnosed. So thank you for taking the time to share with us today, Sharon. How are you doing today? I'm very good today and every good. other day lately. Good. Good for you. <laughs> Sharon, you stated in 2016 that you tried your hand at death by suicide and wrote a book explaining why. I also looked at death by suicide as an option after a 41-year run on marijuana. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story of how you got here today? And feel free to take your time. When I was 17 years old, I experienced an abortion and I instantly regretted it. Subconsciously, I developed an eating disorder and I became really depressed, which I didn't realize was depression because I can only have myself to compare it to. I was staring at the pills in the medicine cabinet and I, I vowed to myself, I made a promise one day when I become too much emotionally in pain, I will take the pills and I will kill myself, which actually became a crutch throughout my life because of course we all go through things that mess with our head. So moving forward, I had uh, postpartum depression and that really hurt me bonding with my first child. I really get jealous when I see these women that just they're loving their baby and I was just I don't want to be a mother why did I do this and, and she was colicky from the second she came out so that just made matters worse and it definitely had an effect on our relationship to today even though we're back in a good place it's, it's just sad that I had to get back to a good place with her my son I didn't have postpartum depression but then I became a raging lunatic which growing up that's what I was used to my mom yelled at us all the time and it was just a really really bad scene and then in 2006, I asked my husband for a divorce. And there was no cheating. It was very respectful. But I took it badly. I was the one, even though I asked for it, I was the one that fell apart. And I hate when people say, well, you wanted it. It's like, no, I needed the divorce. There's a huge difference. If I was going to write another book, that's what it would be. No, I needed the divorce. I lost a lot of weight, which for me, when I got upset, I lost a lot of weight. So I was like 30 pounds in three weeks. It was a lot. 
And I knew I was depressed. I was crying all the time. I was withering away. So I went to see a psychologist and a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist and look, took one look at me and put me on meds and said, we got to regulate you. He, you know, I went to see him for a few more months and then he said something that pissed me off. I'll actually share what he said. He said, um, cause I, I still care about my ex-husband. I still love him as a person. And I was speaking that way about him. And he just goes, I don't think you should be getting divorced. And I just said, you haven't listened to an effing word I've said, walked out. That was the end of the meds. That was the end of the therapy. I thought I'm okay now. I've maintained my weight. I'm not crying as much as I was, even though I was still crying six hours a day and I wasn't leaving the house. So then I totally went off the pills and I thought, well, you know, day after I felt okay. And I didn't know that then after that, my demons took over and I didn't think I was depressed, even though I felt I would never be happy again. I was hopeless. I was worthless. I had no business spending my kids' money. They should inherit it now and I should just die. No one would care. No one would miss me. At the funeral, my kids would be a little sad and then they just get over it and then just wouldn't have a mother. And I truly believe this. And I, I, just, I am a very smart person. So for me to go down that low, it just it's, it amazes me that I felt like that. And so I, I prepared, I prepared many years uh, for suicide. I made up a will, I hoarded pills from the doctor. And then all of a sudden, the weekend before July 4th weekend, it was a beautiful summer weekend and you know, the sun was shining, everyone was out and I didn't leave my apartment. And the thought of having a long weekend with nothing to do, that was something clicked in my mind. I said, I can't do this anymore. And I knew that I could take the pills. I don't, and my psychologist said that a lot of people say that. They just kind of go on autopilot once they get to that point. So I went to work and put everything in order because I'm a very detail-oriented person. I came home, I took all the pills and I went to sleep. And uh, only because every single little thing was put in the right place, which I believe is from my father, my angel, was the only reason I survived. Even a half hour later, I would not be here today. So when I, I was in a coma for a week and when I got, woke from that, when I woke from the hospital, uh, when I woke from the coma, my mom said, it's okay, you're depressed, you'll get the help you need. And something clicked in my brain. I was like, wait, you mean I'm not a loser? I could be happy again? And then type A Sharon jumped in and I was ready to go. You know, so I went to the institution, they regulated my meds. Like, no, no, I want therapy, I want therapy. They're like, you'll have that after. And at the same time, I, I knew I had to write a book because I wrote in my diary why I was doing it because it was July 4th weekend. I didn't want to be alone. And they, they were like, that's not why you did it. That is why I did it. And then, and then I started looking for books about people's why. No one has a why from when it started to when they tried to do it. You know, it's like, oh, I was 30, I was depressed, I tried to do it and here's how I recovered. Or, so I went into real great detail so that people can get in my head and, and understand what I was thinking and stop trying to rationalize something that's not rational. We're sick. And people, oh, yeah, you're feeling blue, you'll get better. No, we won't, we're not feeling blue. Anyone in their right mind would not want to kill themselves and think about it 24 seven. So we have to eradicate this because so many people are afraid to ask for help or even know that they need help and something has to be done. Absolutely, absolutely. And as I said, this is why I do this work because you know, 300 million people in the world or more have depression, but only half of them get help. And, and most of them are men. 
and men are hooked on these masculinity norms that their father, they learn from their father being stoic and emotionless and being the tough guy and not admitting to any issues. And they have a lot of fears about trusting others with their feelings and emotions when it actually takes more courage to ask for help. And what men don't realize is that men need other men in their life to talk about their issues. Women already do it. You know, they're emotive. They, they have, you know, women in their lives that they talk to about their stuff. But then when they talk, when a woman tries to talk to their man about their day or their issues, he doesn't want to hear it. He, he, he doesn't understand his role of a man as far as masculinity is concerned, that he needs to listen and maybe ask some clarifying questions or empathize, but not fix, which I got caught yesterday trying to fix my partner. <laughs> she let me have it. <laughs> now staying in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's in Europe right now, but anyway. oh, <laughs> stay in the house. <laughs> so let me ask you, how did you even fathom trying to, you know, get up off the floor after you were, you were in the hospital and in a coma? What, what was the spark that said, okay, I'm, I'm going to flip this script here. It happened as suddenly as it happened when I decided to take the pills. When my mom said that a light bulb went off and I was like, wait, this isn't permanent. I'm not just a loser and I'll be alone the rest of my life. There's help. And then I'm very type A when, it, when I'm going to do something, I do it. And I was ready to go. And people even when I was in the institution, people thought that I was one of the staff because I acted like myself, except I was very weak or whatever, but I acted more like myself than some of the other people. I was like, no, I'm not staff. Like, oh, you seem fine. You know? But they didn't see me before. But, but even if you saw me before, you wouldn't know. I hid it very well. I didn't share it with anyone. The old double life that we all live. Mm -hmm. that, oh, that's, one, that's one of the things that I've learned as I've gotten healthier and, and being sober from my addictions is I've become my authentic self and I can say things or share things or be vulnerable. And I don't care what others think because it's coming from my insides, my heart, my soul. And that's what I think. That's what I believe. And, and, you know, it's really not nobody else's business, you know, to, to make judgment on what I say or what you say. It, it's who we are. So now you wrote this book and I want to ask, is there a central message that you try to get across? Can you tell us about your style that you use to uh, try and try and help these other people? Well, part of, I, I have a big sense of humor. So definitely part of my book is humor, you know, saying things about like myself, like if I got hit by a car, of course I got hit by a car. That's me, you know, <laughs> but it, I went into the details of what I was thinking. Like 
if a friend said to me, oh, I can't make it tomorrow, immediately, they don't like me. They, they're not doing anything, but they just don't want to be with me. They were just going to go out with me because they were, you know, because I asked. And that my mind went totally in the opposite way, as opposed to maybe their plans did change and they needed to go somewhere else. I guess paranoia is a, paranoia is a really good word for me. Yeah. And everything that happened in my life, I felt I deserved it. Like when I had a miscarriage with twins before I had my daughter. And in a way, I was kind of relieved, like, oh, well, I deserve it. So in that way, I was like, yeah, you know, of course I had a miscarriage, despite the fact that one in four women have a miscarriage. To me, it was punishment. Everything was punishment. I didn't see anything through normal eyes. Yeah. And of all your experiences, what's what's been the most challenging aspect of everything you've gone through? It was when I call it coming out. It's when I first came out and admitted that I had attempted suicide because I was at, I was supposed to be at work that day. So work knew Sharon's missing. They finally found me and now she's unconscious and she was fine last night. What the hell happened? So they, some people kind of put it together. Other, I, I said, I, I got pneumonia, which I did, but it was from the intubation tube and I didn't tell anyone. My mom said, don't tell anyone right away. And I think she was right. I don't know if I was ready to, but then when they were having layoffs and a lot of people were getting laid off and I felt like that's lying. So as I'm getting laid off, I said, well, I need to tell you something. I said, when I was in a coma, I, I tried killing myself. That's why I was in a coma. And, oh, oh my God. And, you know, they were hugging me though. They were, you know, I was, they were nice women. They were hugging me. Good. Then, but then I saw, I actually recently, I'm trying to sell my book here in my community and a woman looks at it and she goes, oh, I don't want to read about that. Right in front of my face, and my, my face is on the cover, you know, <laughs> I wrote the book. I'm like, okay, this is why I wrote the book. Exactly, exactly. Um, and conversely, was there one moment where you felt the most gratification for all your experiences, and, and why was that? More than one person has said to me that I really helped them and saved their life by being so honest. Yeah. That, and that's a blessing. Yep. Now they say if you can help one person in life, we have fulfilled, uh, you know, what we Our need purpose. to do in life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Great. So tell me about when you got down on yourself and you felt that things were just too overwhelming. Um, you know, why, well, why, what prevented you from asking for help? Well, it got to the point when I got really, I didn't want anyone to know because I didn't want them taking away my pills. I needed to have that freedom to kill myself if I wanted to. And sharing it with anyone meant that I wasn't a hundred percent serious about doing it. Whereas I knew at 17 that I would try to kill myself one day. And I, I never thought that I would survive. That was the one thing I never planned for because I took a lot of pills. And the fact that I even survived and the doctor said it's because you don't drink and your liver is so pure. Otherwise, there's no way you would have survived it. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that and being so honest. Um, and let me ask you about your nuclear family. Uh, how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show love, discuss emotions and feelings? 
He's been gone 26 years, but I remember something funny he said when I developed my eating disorder and my mom found out, because moms just know everything. And my father didn't believe in therapy. He goes, I don't believe in therapy, but I know you need it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It was so funny. Proof in the pudding right Uh there. And he was... He was stoic in some sense, but everything with him was love. I love you. I love you. Hug, hug. I love you. I love you. So he adored his children and we adored him back. Mm. And it's the kind of love that a lot of people never experience. And I miss it so badly. Yeah. So just, um, he would never say, even if he like he had a headache, he wouldn't say anything. And my mother would look at his eyes and be like, you have a headache. Take some aspirin and go to sleep. You know, just little things. <laughs> he never shared. It's, I only... Heard him cry once, and that was when his father died. Hmm. And do you relate to that, you know, when he was so stoic that, you know, he was swept up in, in the masculinity norms that he learned from his parents and maybe the media? Uh, he didn't want to share a lot because, you know, it, people might peg him as not, not really being a man. You know, I'm really not sure. He he was not a macho man. He really wasn't. He was he was my daddy. <laughs> but he wasn't. He, his parents were straight from Europe, straight from Poland. So he had old fashioned values, which were beautiful. He visited his parents every weekend. He took them to temple. He was like a really great son. So I'm not sure if, if it was his personality, because me, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I'm just kind of born that way. And my daughter's the same way. He was more reserved. Like no one needs to know that. It, he was, yeah, but I, I really have no idea where it came from. Okay. Um, when, I, when I grew up, and I didn't even realize this till I left my home for my parents, but I discovered that I was a victim of abuse, physically, verbally, uh, mentally, emotionally, and you know, I later found out through doing research in my book that, you know, that was the root of my severe depressive disorder and in turn my addictions to, to numb those feelings. I was wondering if, if you experienced any abuse when you were growing up. No, I, I didn't even know like what molestation was until I was 18. I used to you know, at 17, I'd sit on my father's lap and it was never anything except a daughter wanting to hug her daddy. So uh, I didn't experience that, but a lot of people on my mom's side have depression. Mm. And I believe I, I believe I was just born with it. Mm. Uh, again, through my research, I've found that if depression or any mental health issues go unchecked uh that's when risky behavior shows up whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction pill addiction violence rape things like that and 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 of course death by suicide um did you ever display any risky behavior as a child when you were growing up we moved uh to New City in Rockland County when I was just turning 14. And within two weeks, I was smoking pot every day. <laughs> and then, because I liked it, I couldn't drink because I had migraines mm-hmm. and I liked the, the high. And then people would hand me pills. I didn't even know what they were. I would take them. I'm tripping, I'm taking, you know, lewds, whatever. Yeah, I was one of those. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. And luckily, fortunately, I got the migraines because if I was lying, like I can't move, my mom would think it was a migraine because I would get them often. So I didn't have to make up stories or whatever. I would just go to bed and lie there for 24 hours. But yeah, I was never scared. So you've got children. How do you characterize yourself as a mother? Are you easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream, show your love and emotions? At the beginning, I always showed my kids love. I'm a very affectionate person, and I always just wanted to touch them, squeeze them or whatever. But I did get very, and anger came out. And it was something that just came over me, and I grew up with it with my mom. And I would just rage at the littlest things. And we're talking screaming. And, you know, a couple, Gary, Gary, my husband at the time, would be like, I'm taking the kids out, you know, getting away from you. And, and it was horrible. It really was horrible. And then one night, my son was, um, we were trying to get him not to pee during the night, you know, in his bed. So I took him to the bathroom. He's just being all over the place because he was like half asleep. And I yelled. And it was that second that I said, I can't do this to my children. I can't have them grow up the way I did. And it coincided with the time when I was getting therapy because I was also depressed. And I think that's, that's the best thing I've ever done for my children. I, I don't yell. I mean, I'm still a little uh, kind of person, but I don't rage. And yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more calmer. It's not there. The rage is dead. That's excellent. That's really excellent. Um, so tell me, what have you learned from all of these experiences you've gone through so far in your life? I've learned no one's perfect. I've learned that you're the only person you will always have. And self-hatred is just pretty much throwing your life away. Because when you hate yourself, you can't love anyone or anything else. I've learned that honesty is the best policy. And I'm always honest. Either, even if people, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Okay, we don't need to talk about it. But I'm, I am who I am at this point. I've already hit under rock bottom and I've come out more alive than ever. And you know, if someone wants to not be my friend because I try to, to attempt suicide, I don't want to be your friend either because that means you're closed-minded. I mean, I've never been an alcoholic or whatever, but when someone explains it to me, I understand the addiction because I had an eating disorder and I totally empathize with it. I'm not like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't take drugs to the point or alcohol until I blacked out. Like, no, I empathize. And I think with suicide, people don't try to empathize. They try to, they just want to put it under the rug. Like, just let's not talk about that. Or they confide in me and say, I had a brother, a mother, a child who also, they attempted suicide and they, they did, they died. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you one last question. Personally, how do you describe masculinity? For me, it, it's not the macho guy who's lifting weights four hours a day and being, oh, yeah, I'm a big bully. It's the man who sees a, a hurt animal on the side of the road and is right with me when I'm screaming, stop, stop, we have to save the animal. And he's, oh, wait, we got a towel. It's, it's a man who's kind. It's a man who's understanding. It's a man who's on your side. Even if they don't agree with you, they respect what you say, which was a big issue in my marriage. I'm very psychic. 
And Gary didn't believe in that. And that's fine. Even though he witnessed it sometimes, he didn't believe in it. But he should respect it. And there were things about him that I respected it, even though I didn't agree with it or believe in it. So for men out there thinking they need to be macho, they need to be the opposite. Be yourself. That's the best you can be. I agree. Um, I, I look at it this way. There's three elements that I think men need to master if they're going to be considered masculine. They need to be strong. But as you say, they need to be strong enough to have a conversation with somebody or listen to others. And they know that the message is going to be difficult for one or the other person to hear. But they've got to be strong enough to, you know, especially with women, to create this safe space for a woman to be who she is and not be threatened with it and allow the woman to, again, express herself and, and not fix her and, you know, pretty much listen and maybe ask some questions for clarification, empathize. But um, a man's big job is to listen to the woman in his life or the woman that he works with. Um, strength also, I mean, men, you know, they have to be strong and moving heavy boxes and moving pianos down the stairs, etc. But the, the first one that you mentioned is, is really the key as far as strength is concerned. Second one, second element is, is, a man has to have a sense of humor. He can't have, uh, he can't believe that and take everything so seriously. You know, life's to enjoy, it's to have fun. And that's what it's meant to be. And, uh, you know, so many men are competitive and let me show you and I've got more toys than you. I've got more women than you. I've got more blah, 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 blah and their ego is just coming through as opposed to, um, you know, just mixing it up and having a good time and, and, you know, keeping it light. And the third element is spirituality. I believe a man has to have some connection, whatever connection he wants to have. It, it, there's many available. He can choose whatever he wants, but, you know, I think men have to have something that they can go to and ground themselves and keep them, you know, in, in a, in a good place to, to do life. So. And I think spirituality is one that men have a really hard time with unless things keep happening to them that they just can't deny it. My mother has to be sending me messages or whatever, but that's, I don't know if they think it's feminine or it makes you weak. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's the women who I speak to, they're like, oh yeah, you know, and I want to talk about them. And they're like, eh. and I don't know why that is because when you could open yourself up, it's such a beautiful thing to get messages from people who are gone. And it's yeah. just beautiful. It, it's ignorance. It, it's just ignorance. And again, that fear that they would be pigeonholed as feminine 
and it's fear. It's fear. And uh, look, it's so important to me. I I studied Kabbalah for twelve years, and so I really understand what spirituality is about and how it dovetails into why things happen in the world. And I have to practice it on a daily basis. I have to pray and meditate at least once a day. Otherwise, you know, the shit hits the fan. And I'm like, God, what? why did I say that? Why did I do that? You know, I wasn't conscious of what I was really doing. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was upset at my wife yesterday and um, it wasn't about what I was talking about. You know, I had a deeper resentment that not until, you know, she sliced my head off that I looked deep, deep enough to understand what was really going on. And it's like, I'll, I'm, I'm great at telling this to other guys or other people, but you know, sometimes it's like, take my advice. I'm not using it. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't even practice what I preach, you know? So it was, it was a big learning step yesterday. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it actually felt good to, um, experience that and, and write about it and get on the other side of it. So, you know, I just need to minimize that type of behavior. So it's funny you, you say that because I used to do it to my daughter because we're so much alike, which what I, she didn't like in me, she was afraid was in her as well. So I would say things like, You're not angry at me, or she'd be like, Don't catalyze me. <laughs> but I knew what she was doing. So <laughs> okay, I won't analyze you, but I know you're not mad at me, you're mad at your friend or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you feel most comfortable taking it out on me. Yeah, we, we, well, what I was doing yesterday was projecting my feelings and emotions on my partner. And it's just not, that's not fair to her, you know? So anyway, as you can see, Sharon's story is quite remarkable. She's a self-made woman of courage, bravery, and giving to her community. We're honored to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts? I mean, get help if you need it. I'm not even going to say that. Um, if you see someone struggling or you feel you're struggling yourself, and if you want to keep it to yourself at the beginning or whatever, it's okay. It's okay to feel the pain a little bit. But if you see it keeps continuing, you need to get help, or otherwise you may end up either another suicide survivor or suicide success. Absolutely. I mean, look at all the pain and suffering that's going on in the world today. These mass shootings, almost 90% of the reports that come in, they tell about the action that happened, but then at the end they say, oh, by the way, in looking in this person's background, his file, they found that the person had mental health issues. And in our society today, they want to punish these people as opposed to getting them help. And that's just got to change. People 
you know, these hate crimes, people have to realize that there's another way to handle their emotions and feelings in a healthy, in a healthy way, other than beating people up or killing others or taking their own lives. So, Yeah, a lot of uh, celebrities are what I call coming out now, which I think is amazing. And I do want to say, please read my book, 69th Street Suicide. It's spelled out, 69th Street Suicide. And you understand a lot more about the thoughts that go on behind the happy face that's not happy. Right on. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so that I can learn more from you and we can help others. Uh, listeners, please look out for our, our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. And contact me for speaking engagements through my website, TimCrass.com, T-I-M-K-R-A-S-S.com. And don't forget to have fun, everybody. <laughs>